0: From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Craig Sauer, senior editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. This week's guest is Randy Harrington, who was a featured speaker at the recent CUNA CEO Council Conference in San Diego. Harrington is the CEO of Extreme Arts and Sciences, which serves global high-tech firms with executive planning and communications support. He is also the CEO of Strategic Arts and Sciences, which serves financial institutions, healthcare services, and public agencies. He was one of the many authors of the CUNA 2017-2018 Environmental Scan Report, which highlights some of the top strategic trends facing credit unions today. Harrington spoke with my CUNA colleague Adam Mertz while at the CUNA CEO Council Conference in San Diego. In this day and age with how much is changing, and you mentioned that
1: in in terms of strategic planning, that you can't make these plans that last for long because so much is fluid in the marketplace these days. CEOs are kind of in that position where they can't be the knowledge masters anymore, correct? I mean, you have to lean on your board of directors, to know what they're doing. You have to lean on senior staff to know what they're doing. That's, that's a whole nother challenge that CEOs face these days.
2: It, it's true. Uh, it's, a, there's a, it's a strange tension between really wanting to um, have clarity about where you're going and what's important, and at the same time being responsive and nimble, quick to change, quick to take advantage of opportunity, and quick to shut down things that are actually sources of weakness. And it is that, that kind of uh, decision tempo that is the unique role of the CEO. Mm-hmm. What I'm finding now is that, particularly as it relates to sociological change and organizational change, there's only so much people can do. Mm-hmm. And I think we, get, we don't do ourselves a service when we try to rush our members and push them in places where they don't want to go, and they're not ready for it yet. So I've actually come off of hmm. this, because uh, a very wise person told me, he said, you know, when you move too fast, um, it's like the organization creates a histamine response of uh, resistance. Yeah, and to rejection. whatever it is. To whatever it is. Yeah. And so what you have to do is move just that much slower that you don't create that kind of allergic reaction to whatever it is that you're putting out there. And I thought it was a very smart thing to say. Uh, so, it's uh, again, it just makes the, the role of leadership for a CEO much as much an art as it is a science. I mean, you're, you're being a, like a really good chef, you know, at that point where
1: it's the, the subtleties matter. The, yeah. The little, the little bits make the difference. And, and how, about, how does that play into strategic planning? And that's what you're talking about, about having this course of action that you've laid out. Rather than trying to um, you know, do things on the fly, you're showing that you have a plan of attack. And here's right. we want to get in. What are some of the challenges maybe to get to there? I think one of the bigger challenges right now, I see it happening all the time, is a simple
2: question from the board and the CEO and the senior team saying, who's responsible for the ideation, for the ideas? that are gonna drive this credit union forward. Should that be coming from the board? If so, that's kind of weird because we don't really know what's going on, but we have values and sensibilities. and So I, I think that the, the, the issue with the CEO now is they have to give themselves permission to be the ones that are either soliciting or arbitrating those core ideas They can't rely on their board for that. They can't rely exclusively on their senior team for that. They can get support from both. Mm -hmm. But the truth of it is, it boils right down to the CEO. And so that's one just basic example where I've seen people waste a couple of years of time because they're in competition or the board is challenging them to, the board wants, I've heard this a lot, we want to feel our hands on the wheel. The board wants to feel a sense of control in the organization. Well, okay. That's great. But when you do that, you can take away so much initiative and motivation. So the CEO has to own it and they have to step up and say, this is what works. And, you know, it's a simple thing. To the degree that your credit union is healthy and you're growing and you're hitting your marks and so forth, hey, we don't need to go get crazy. But to the degree that the trends are not working well, that you're watching your average age of member go down, that you are either not growing or you're growing in a way that's destroying your capital. Whatever those challenges are, is, uh, is a word I like very much. and The word is exigence. And uh, I don't n- remember what the exact Webster dictionary is, but there's a guy named Lloyd Bitzer, and he says that an exigence is an imperfection marked by urgency. So what I like to see a CEO do is say, here are the exigencies that we're going to be working against, and here are the opportunities we're going to be working against. Mm. And then through that, this plan is going to be hitting, ticking off both sides of that, uh, you know, both columns there uh, as they go through. But I think it should always have that that sense of um, what do we need to fix now, right now? Where's that urgency at? One of the big messages I have in my presentation at this experience is uh, I'm seeing a trend I'll just leave it at that. Of people bringing services back in house, we had gotten into the ha- into the habit as an or- as an industry of outsourcing freaking everything. Yes, you know. Yes. And so now, really, what our job is is we have seventy one vendors that we're working with, and then we talk to members on occasion. Yeah. But what we're finding is that smart. CEOs, I think, are realizing that they have got to deeply own the differentiating characteristics that cannot be outsourced. And it's not a mystery. Ninety-five percent of the strategic plans coming out of the credit union space say they're going to differentiate with some kind of service model. Because what else is there? Right? At this point, right. Right. I mean, so that's great. But to just say service, we're going to have service and service, and we're going to serve, serve, service, yeah. It doesn't mean squat. So you've got to really, you know, the, the ones that to me are really winning the game are drilling into that relentlessly. They're drilling into it from, from marketing data, from uh, uh, focus groups and qualitative data. They're looking at trended data. They're looking at best practices in other institutions. They're really trying to, to align with some kind of fundamental value, happiness, or you know something really rooted. Uh, here, we're going to be talking a lot about community, for example, and yes. community engagement. So what does that really, 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 really mean? And then you have got, once you've figured that out, don't you dare outsource that. That is what
1: you are all about at that point. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And you talked a lot when I looked through your website about alignment yeah. about that being crucial and yeah. and the factors that I saw were strategy, business intelligence, and design mm-hmm. and i'm I'm most uh interested in hearing about where design fits into that, and in what sense design fits into that because the first two I think you know people see that and they're like, yes, that makes sense. Where does design fit in, and what do you mean by that
2: yeah uh, it's a good question because it was it was new to me too, um, that was kind of an aha so a uh, real super short version of the story is, um, we're doing all this work for uh, Microsoft and other digital firms, and it turns out that we would have an executive that was gonna change the rules for 4,000 salespeople globally, okay? Well, sending them an email doesn't work, and getting them on a phone call doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, What we found worked, was really compelling uh, for about three years. It was really compelling video shorts, where we would produce two-minute videos that were mind-blowing. Of oh, this is why that really got to the why question or whatever. You know. So what we found was is that there's an analog process that people need to go through before they buy in, and I, it's a, maybe it's a younger generation thing too, but. Um, There's, we have an appetite for media that is refined. For one, we grew up with very refined media all the time. But Mm -hmm. now we've got sort of the YouTube. Pick up the, you know, it's. I don't want to say that it's all that way, but even YouTube has a design element to it and a functionality to it. You can watch a YouTube video and go, well, that's not even appropriate for that. You know, it's too. It was overproduced or whatever. Yeah. But. what i discovered was uh i had a great moment where i did a speech i had some of my team members watch the speech i was very proud of the speech the speech killed it did great people loved it it felt like you know yeah and i was like that's kind of what i do because people didn't understand what i do and then when we get in the car we always do a debrief right after everything's over and the debrief was we get into the car and i was kind of expecting high fives like good job dude right get in the car with three of my people and I'm like, "Oh my god, I am mortified. I I I had I couldn't even talk to people. I had to get out of there." And I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" "Your slides were horrid. You know, your slides were just I was, it was ghastly, you know." And I was like, "Really?" So we start hiring designers again and again and again to kick things up to another level, kick it to the next level. Well, we did so much work with this design group called Solitude Creative. We ended up swallowing them up taking them into our huh. company. Yeah. So then I've got a, a cadre of designers who are doing all kinds of work. And my favorite story lately is they're actually designing walls in office buildings that tell strategic stories. That's cool. Because you're going to walk by that every time you go in and out, and that story is going to get kind of imprinted in your head. So this is internal?
1: Like, for in, an internal in, Internal,
2: right. So, yeah. It, it's uh, Let's say you're a large you know, a a software firm in Seattle. Let's just take that as an example. Yeah, yeah. Hypothetically, hypothetically, you might walk into their buildings, though, and see these murals that are, you know, artistically magnificent and produced. Not only are they, you know, monstrously large, but they are uh, the kind of thing where you want to stop and take a second and just... And maybe you have to look at it nine times, and then all of a sudden it starts kind of clicking in. Yeah. But that's what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing that, that the quality of something and the ability to uh, appeal to an emotion in you is an essential characteristic of a successful strategy creating alignment with culture. Yeah. So I see strategy over here on one side, culture over here on the other. And culture is that woo-woo, fuzzy-wuzzy, right.
1: gooey human thing that's the place where you win or lose. Yeah, and so we were talking about SEALs, yeah. what do they bring in terms of uh, application yeah. to what we're learning about this week? Right. Uh,
2: I, so I've had this uh, deep fascination with the teams uh, for a long time since doing research on high-performance teams in, in graduate school. That's what actually got me into that in the first place and went down and interviewed a bunch of uh, UDT guys down in Fort Pierce, Florida, the underwater demolition teams, these were the original naked warriors. These are the guys that would, uh, uh, in World War II and in Korea, they would just wear like uh, just a swimsuit and a crappy mask, and and they'd jump off, and they'd swim in, and they'd map beach obstacles under fire, uh, swim back to the boat, get debt cord, swim back out to the obstacles to blow up the obstacles so the Marines could land, and wow. I don't know what the numbers were, but, you know, 25 guys jump off the boat and five come back that kind of thing yeah it was a suicide mission yeah fundamentally but these guys were crazy they would put vaseline all over their body that's what they used to protect themselves for from you know to insulate them to give them some sense of warmth and whatnot um so udt was where it started and then i moved into to working with and studying the teams and the teams are uh, a beautiful thing Um, i mentioned uh, in an earlier part of this uh, that uh I, am, I literally have the nickname Gandhi uh, among our, our friends because, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I am. I'm an old hippie. I, I, I like peace and love and flowers. and So it's like, what's with you and the seals? I mean, it just doesn't seem to go together. But I think, I think it goes together because it is so complementary. Uh, I have deep respect for, for what it takes to be a seal, fundamentally. Uh, and you can line up 500 seals, and they're all different. They're all different. They mm-hmm. look different. Mm-hmm. One's tall, one's short, one's really muscular, one's really lean. You know, they're and nowadays they're wicked smart. A lot of them have advanced degrees, graduate degrees. Some are medical professionals, doctors, sure. who are becoming seals. I mean, it's crazy how smart these people are. And a study was done by the Navy some time ago now, 5-6 years ago, where they were trying to understand what are the characteristics that what is what is it that makes a seal a seal? Mm-hmm. Because we can't predict who's going to get through BUDS, Basic mm-hmm. Underwater Demolition Seal Training, which is right next to us here at the Hotel Del Coronado. You can throw a bottle over the fence there. And, uh, you know, they would. The, the instructors will tell you, they can't figure out who's going to pass and who's not. You'll see the high school athlete guy, the person who's a great scholar, da-da-da. But the study came back and it said the one thing that seems to be common among all of them is they have a high degree of empathy, and a high degree mm. of emotional intelligence. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The most fierce warriors in the world are the most fierce warriors in the world because they care. Because they can care for each other, because they can care about what they're doing. They're not knuckle-dragging animals that are out to just do damage and kill people. Yeah. They're there for very specific reasons and you know, it, to me it's the highest level of, you know, bushido or warrior class, warrior spirit. That is why I'm so compelled by them. So what do they bring to a conversation like this? They understand how to distribute power in a group. So the first thing they will tell you is that every team needs a leader. I was one of the back in the day who was like, no, leadership can be shared within a team. That was stupid and it was wrong. Teams need leaders. Mm -hmm. But those leaders need to be able to be uh, in a place of humility through the whole leadership process. They need to enable the team uh, at kind of their expense a little bit, you know. They, they listen to the junior person's ideas, and the, the process of coming together and working as a team is entirely a team process. So SEALs have a reputation for not following military discipline the same way other command groups do. Because once you're on the team, you're a team member, and that has all kinds of responsibility. Uh, One of my favorite concepts uh, is this idea that if you're the only one who knows something, you are a huge problem. So you've gone to combat medical school, you learned the new suture technique, now you come back and aren't you Mr. Fancy Pants because you learned that and you got that certification. If I'm your boss, if I'm your LT on the SEAL team, First thing I'm going to do is get in your face and say, you damn well be able to to get these three other guys certified in the next three days. It took you a week, but that's just because you're 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 not smart. You need to get these guys through in three days, and then you're not going to be in trouble. So you know yeah. that's the way it rolls. You right. come back with like, oh look at me, yeah. and, and boom, nope. nope, you are now a problem. If you've got knowledge the rest of us don't have, and you haven't shared it with at least one other person. Your reliability. And that's a very simple mm-hmm. concept. But I see it happen all the time in credit unions. Yeah. Where, well, no, we can't do anything because, you know, Scott's the only one who knows how to reboot the server, or Sue's the only one who knows how to make the LOS do what it's supposed to. You know, big yeah. trouble. Yeah. Big, big trouble. Succession is probably the most important concept right now that CEOs need to be dealing with at a comprehensive level, end-to-end, end. and that is what SEALs think about all the time. So if you're a SEAL, you go work with a team for, you know, uh, train with them for a period of time. So I'm making this up now, but probably close. Six yeah. months, seven months, eight months. Then you go and you're operational, six months, seven months, eight months. Then you're, you guys, you're, you're heroes of the day. You're the best people in the world. You come back, and what does the Navy do? Split you up. You come back, they're right. take you apart and put you in with other teams, yeah. and then you're going to start the cycle all over again. Uh, Steve Allberg said in a Fortune magazine article I loved, he said, uh, you know, having a high-performance team in your workplace is like getting a tiger cub for Christmas. It's cute and cuddly the first year, and the next year it will eat your children. And that is the truth. So the trick with high-performance teams is to always have an end date. You're going to be a high-performance team for three months, and then you're going to stand down. And if you're not done, then you're going to hand that job to the next team that's going to take it over. And that simple thought can change everything. In an organization. It's so simple. And that's the thing about these guys. They, they, you know, you hear it and you go, really? It's, God, really? And every time
1: you try to cheat that, you get killed. Does that speak to the type of challenge then that you present them with? Yeah. Also, though, it can't be this open-ended. No, right. um, Big, you know, you take it where you want to go. No, we have a point that we need to get to. You get us there.
2: Yeah, the dirty little secret of the SEAL teams is that they rig it to win. Okay. These are not people that like to go and take massive risks. Yeah. You would think, oh, they, you know, do a hey-ho out of a plane. Well, that's because that's the only way they could do it. If that risk is something they had to do, yeah. that's the only way. They, but they would much prefer to take a cab, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> or, or or you know, some some reasonable way to get yeah. into whatever it is they're gonna do. They're not they're not uh, crazy risky gunslingers. And so their whole process of thinking is about ensuring that they're going to be winners. Pays to be a winner. It's so yeah. one of their fun, fundamental things you hear at Buds all the time. Pays to be a winner. Six boat crews, you know, paddle out, and the last one that comes in, uh, well, guess what? They have to go back and do it three more times while the other guys are, you know, able to get rest, and yeah. so they just kind of crush the week. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, they engineer victory. And that is something that is a powerful thought. It's like, why would we put ourselves into a position where we have massive risk? Let's not do that.
1: Let's mitigate that risk from the get-go. Yeah. Um, What do you see credit unions, financial services looking like in the year 2030?
2: Yeah. um, So I'm I'm a big believer in tools. And I think that, that human beings gravitate to things that make things better for them. And so what is the work that the financial service industry needs to do for people? And so the idea of just being a bank that held your money back in the day, all of that is gone now. And so now what we're going to be moving more and more towards are these families of services that um, optimize a person's income with their life needs. And that's gonna be different for everybody at one level, but at the same time, we all know that people starting new families need blah, blah, and people going to college need blah, blah, people retiring need blah, blah. They may be a little bit different, but uh, it's it's still consistent enough. And so what I think you're gonna see is um, that we're gonna be much better at crafting almost bespoke service packages for our members that suit exactly where they're at, that optimize them, that let them know, that give them power and choice on how they're using their money in very digital ways. So it's like, okay, here you are. The, you know, machine intelligence is going to be holding up a financial mirror for the member on an mm-hmm. almost daily basis in much the way your Fitbit does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I kind of imagine it moving to that level where you're just going to have a kind of a continuous access into very specific Issues associated with your financial life, and that's all great. But you're going to need to have people who can pull together the right package based on where you're at. And I think you'll see specialists. You'll see people that are good at working at you know uh, helping people move out of poverty cycles. I think that's a big opportunity for us, uh, and, and the kind of financial education associated with that, walking away from payday lenders and stuff, all the way to uh, you know elite. Uh, high end. I think that's another place credit unions have a lot of potential. Uh, I think we could play in the concierge banking environment if we give ourselves permission to do that, and we decide that's the strategic direction we want to go.
1: And a lot of these initiatives that you talk about too requires a lot of tech, a lot of technical knowledge, a lot of technical backing. And you, I don't know what your message is to CEOs when they come and ask you about investment. In infrastructure, and with your technical background, I'm sure you have a lot of ideas on where you ought to see them spending money right now, or, or forming CUSOs, or whatnot. Right.
2: Right. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about building smart relationships. Uh, you know, I think blockchain is one of those technologies that is going to upend the industry, both because of what it can do for us from a security perspective, but it's going to just imply a whole different relationship to the ownership of data. The idea that we sit on all our data, we find out now, is a huge liability. Yes. It's a major constraint. So, by distributing that data, we actually strengthen ourselves, but we also find ourselves then in a, in a, a much more connected ecosystem of work. So, this, I think we just have to let go of the idea that we're sort of alone out there uh, operating as individuals, and we really need to be a lot more collaborative than we are. And I think, you know, whether you like it or not, technologies like blockchain are going to kick the door in. Because you're not going to be able to compete if you're not a part of one of those circles of wagons right? Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. out there. I think that's mission critical. And that's just an example. So all the way through, you're going to see the need, I think, for much more collaborative, cooperative interaction. Because we can't afford to do it otherwise.
0: Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.